I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, NHS doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special two-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Professor Sir Simon Wesley, Regis Chair of Psychiatry at King's College London and President of the Royal Society of Medicine and former head of the Royal College of Psychiatrists about the effects of COVID on the brain and mental health. So Simon, when we're thinking about COVID, we tend to think about you know this cough um, and the fever, but quite a few of my patients and, and actually some of my friends and colleagues have been reporting that after they, they've, they've got over the initial symptoms of COVID, they started to experience other symptoms, which are more mental health related. So things like feeling very anxious, quite panicky, feeling shortness of breath. Is there, is there a mental health condition or is, is there something specifically related to um, this kind of post-COVID syndrome? Well, honestly, I think it's a bit too early to say that. Um, we know that after any severe illness of any shape or form, be it psychological or physical, convalescence takes a long time. And there's a whole variety of symptoms associated with that. And um, fatigue, for example, poor concentration, um, poor sleep, poor appetite. Some people get over it very quickly. My wife got COVID, she got sick very quickly and then got well very quickly. But there's a whole a whole range of time that people take. And for once, we can be a bit clear on this one because we've only really had COVID since March, uh, possibly a little bit earlier. So it's too early to talk about post-COVID syndromes because we don't normally talk about that till maybe three or even six months because we know that perfectly normal people take a, will take, some of them will take far longer than others. And in our chronic fatigue clinic, for example, we won't see people until six months. Why? Because most of them will have got better in that time. So we don't know how big a problem it is. We don't know its causes yet. And we don't know its time course. So we are early. We can make some assumptions and we can look back on other um, conditions that have been similar and make some informed guesses. But it's, it's and I've been looking at the, you know, following some of the same stories you probably have as well, people with, you know, long COVID or um, COVID fatigue, et cetera. And some of my friends also has got that. But it's too early to come to judgment. The kind of research that's necessary is being started. And I think in a few months' time, the picture will be a heck of a lot clearer than it is now. Because I suppose one of the things that really struck me was rather than what sets it aside from a typical respiratory illness for example is the is the vascular components to it so so your your veins mm. and your arteries are also involved i think they, that's the kind of current thinking and also i suppose they've been doing some brain scans because of its relation to things like losing your sense of smell mm-hmm. taste which yep. of course is, is, a, is a is a part of your brain people might not necessarily realize that but actually you know, your, your olfactory nerve. I do remember that. So, um, so yeah, so, right, so the general public might not necessarily realise that that is a direct brain effect. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, of course, but there are still numerous ways in which this can occur. I mean, you know, the most obvious and perhaps scary one is the, 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 this is a neurotoxic virus. That certainly seems to be the case. But quite in what way it's neurotoxic and how isn't necessarily the case. So we've clearly had reports of people getting strokes which causes massive neuropsychiatric damage, but may not be, um, doesn't mean that the virus has affected the brain. Um, we certainly also know that the 
body's reaction, the immune storm and cytokine storm that people talk about, clearly has major central nervous system effects, but still doesn't mean necessarily that the virus has got into the brain. And I understand the early post-mortem studies, some of which are due out soon, do show areas of inflammation in the brain, but it's not yet clear whether that is direct or indirect. As I say, it's early. Yeah. And, um, but it seems to have neurotoxic properties. My friends in ITU tell me that, you know, most people in ITU get confused, but even more seem to have acute confusional states, um, psychotic episodes, etc., as a neuropsychiatric consequence. So it's doing something, that's for sure. So it may well be, I suppose, well, as you say, it's too early to know for sure. It may well be that it's having a really direct, specific impact on the brain. But also, it, it might just be that some of these the, these these problems that are we're coming across now, the kind of anxiety and stuff, could well be a symptom of of just having had a really unpleasant virus. Yes, I mean they certainly could be. Um, we know that um, any overwhelming illness, particularly if you're in a terrifying place like intensive care, there's a rate of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, a kind of psychological disorder as a result of these near-death experiences, and um, I haven't been through it, thank God. But people who have, it, it's, it's a genuinely terrifying ordeal, and yeah. it would be completely astonishing if there were not psychologically mediated illnesses afterwards and, and, and depression, et cetera, as well. And, and so long as it's spotted, one hopes it would, they would respond both to the passage of time, and it's early days to know that, or to the conventional treatments that we have providing people remember to ask. But it will be completely astonishing if there isn't an increased rate of those disorders. I mean, because you mentioned intensive care, and that was something I was quite interested in, because you you work as a liaison psychiatrist, which for people who don't know, is a psychiatrist that goes out into general um, hospitals Mm -hmm. and and looks at and, and helps people with mental health problems. And I remember a long time ago, I did that as a junior doctor. And, um, and I remember going on to intensive care and you would see a lot of delirium in intensive yeah. care, which is you know, a state of confusion, not just because of the illnesses that people have, but just literally from being in intensive care. Yes. And we, I mean, there have been various trials done since you were a junior, Max, which is quite a lot, not quite a long time ago as I was, but it still <laughs> is a while ago. Quite a while. Yes, that's right. And um, how the intensive care environment, for example, itself creates sensory deprivation. And now they're a lot better at providing distraction, at um, trying to regulate the light and the noise and provide headphones and iPads and things like that. But it's still a terrifying place and with a high rate of psychiatric morbidity. Um, I think that when we look at other infective epidemics or indeed infections, there has been uh, um, a theme running for almost 100 years now of post-infective fatigue sy- syndromes uh, at the end of the Victorian era after influenza epidemics, after typhoid and things like that. So we would expect something like that to happen. But it is too early to be clear on that because you also need what we call cohort studies to look at the, the first ones that are happening now are the outcome of the most severe. And obviously the most severe cases in hospital will certainly have a higher rate of these disorders. But we haven't really yet paid much attention to what in terms of of morbidity and the risk of death we might call mild, but there are still people with what we would classify as mild illness but are having prolonged recoveries. You know, if you follow my colleague Felicity Callard, uh, the sociologist on Twitter, 
who is one of the most informed and, and sensible and uh, clear-sighted people. And she has this, and she's obviously trying to make sense of it. And, and I thoroughly recommend what she says and, uh, and happens. But even she, you know, she's on, I don't think, I can't remember, you know, it's a day 50 or day 55. Well, that's six, seven weeks, eight weeks. In our terms, that's still not that long a time to be convalescing from any illness. It's still within the range of normal. And it's not until we get to three months or even six months that we would start to really be concerned. And so it is, you know, and because you can't have had COVID really in this country for more than three or four months. Some people say maybe Christmas, but it's obvious that the vast majority were infected in March, April. That's not that long away. So it's interesting. So so it's 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 simply too soon to know. But also, Mm. what I'm hearing. Is, is something much bigger about, about how we approach illness, which is that, you know, we expect to have a cold or have an infection or something and, you know, a day in bed watching black and white films and then we're back and that's all okay. If that, we'd rather just go into work. And in a way, maybe what this is teaching us is that we have to bless and what that really means. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we have to be taught that. I mean, um, you know, do, do think, look at glandular fever. You know, um, glandular fever, Epstein-Barr virus, it causes glandular fever. Um, we've known for years, uh, research by one of our mutual friends and colleagues, Peter White, showed, oh, gosh, you know, 25, 30 years ago is associated with a, a more prolonged and intense fatigue syndrome than, for example, influenza. So, so that certain infective agents, Q fever, giardiasis, things like that, have more prolonged fatigue syndromes. It is perfectly well known. Now, what's not well known is why, actually, and we still to this day, we don't know why EBV has a particular propensity to cause chronic fatigue. But that's been around for a long time. And when you say you don't know, it's, you mean it from a scientific perspective? Yes. It yes. makes sense because we've got rid of the virus, but yet still yes. have symptoms of it. So that's the Yeah, kind of- I mean, it, that, that's basically correct. And um, you do have very rare conditions in which you don't get rid of the virus, or you have HIV, for example, again, a different model of illness. But the, the classic one, does seem to be that you do get rid of the virus, but you're left with some form of fatigue syndrome. And, and, and why EBV is particularly powerful causing this, my friends in virology and immunology still, you know, they, they stroke their chins. They don't know. And you would think something as simple as that would have worked out, but we haven't. Um, so there's nothing new about some illnesses requiring longer convalescence than others. And it's the same also in psychiatry, in our business, we know that some traumas take longer to recover than, than others. And we know that if you've been in a terrible trauma, you know, for the first week, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, you could be in a complete mess. But nobody would say that's a psychiatric disorder that needs treatment. Um, they know that time is a great healer. And it's not until you get to three, four months, I don't know, if you still can't sleep, if you're still anxious, nervous, shaky, uh, etc. Then people like you and me might get involved, but we don't get involved straight away. Indeed, if we did, we'd do more harm than good, as as we also showed. Um, and uh, and we're actually, can you just, just sort of expand a bit on that about how sometimes when professionals rush in too early, mm. actually yes. we cause problems because there's, there's always a concern, and the narrative is always around us not going in soon enough and waiting until things get really really bad. Mm. But actually, and there's this idea of kind of preventative medicine, but actually mm. what you're saying with this, that there are times when going in too soon 
can actually yeah. make things work? I mean, the, the classic one in psychiatry is um, what we used to do is called psychological debriefing, which was within hours of someone being exposed to a trauma. You would ask them, how was it for you? What does it feel like? What did you see? You know, you saw someone blown up in front of you or something horrific like that. Uh, and, then you, and then you'd say, how was it for you? And then you would talk about the symptoms that you might get and things like that. We now know not only did that not work and reduce the long-term psychological consequences, it actually made it worse. So now we don't do that. And, you know, there's a time and a place, and that is neither the time nor the place. And um, in the world of infection, we know that over-aggressive attempts at early exercise and rehabilitation um, can, can be harmful. Um, we also know that under attempts as well, you can, you've got to strike the happy medium. But certainly in active viral infection, um, you shouldn't be going out jogging or doing your yoga or whatever. You really shouldn't. But there is a time, and most people you know, work that out fairly well for themselves and don't need much help uh, when you do start to get more active. But if you did it too early, and I've got lots and lots of patients over the years, and we also see it in the COVID stories, my colleague Paul Garner, a very well-known and famous epidemiologist I trained with, he has this, and he's been writing in the BMJ about it, and he, a fit guy, um, went on and, and did too much. I mean, you know, <laughs> should have spoken to me that told him don't do that. Uh, but, and, and is suffering. Um, I, you know, one hopes that he will improve, and I'm sure he will, but it certainly set him back. Because I, I was reading through some of the advice um, that various hospitals have produced for, for patients after they've had COVID, and a lot of it talks about this kind of graded exercise. Because mm. um, um, I suppose it's difficult. I, I, you know, I have a friend who has had it, he's really still suffering now, um, but he's very fit and sporty, so he's absolutely pushing himself. And actually, mm. I think it's not been really unhelpful for him because yeah. it's shown him where his limitations are. He's got frustrated, and I think it's made him kind of quite depressed and quite anxious. Um, and also it's meant that he's got a, still a shortness of breath, and and actually he now panics more. And it, and and it, there's a sort of the flip side of that is then people being just too scared to exercise at all. Um, you, you, I think you're quite right, Max. I mean, I think that um, certainly over the 25 years I've been clinically seeing patients with chronic fatigue syndromes after infections, there's definitely this pattern of people who do, particularly if they've been very fit and, and may not quite realize just how much they've been dehabilitated by the illness or people have had an operation or a car crash or something. Um, uh, there is, uh, that, that certainly you can not help yourself by being too aggressive too early. And then you can get into a pattern, as you, as you said, for the breathing difficulties that may be post-COVID. Um, they could also be related to the fact that people with asthma are more likely to get it, or they could be because you've got into a circle of anxiety and the symptoms are indistinguishable. I mean, really indistinguishable. Um, and, and that's when judgment starts to come in. And I worry about, um, you know, when, when you leave hospital, you're normally given one of these leaflets, aren't you? And yet, particularly with COVID, which has, you know, affects people in such different ways, some of them unclear and uncharted. And, you know, the kind of advice you would give, you know, a lot of patients with COVID are already frail and elderly. They're clearly going to need a totally different approach to rehabilitation to the approach we might have used in our student glandular fever clinics. And it's got to be more nuanced than it is at the moment, um, is my view. And it needs more research as well. And the other thing we have to do, the really, you know, I sit on grants committees at the moment and the studies that are like gold dust 
are the ones where you have very good physical, mental, social data on people before the COVID epidemic. And we have lots of these big studies in this country. They've been repurposed now to look at COVID. And that's when, and they will include people who not even known they've had the illness, people who have had it mildly, um, you know, not had to go to hospital or be ventilated and yet aren't getting better. Um, and people who've had it very severe and many, many people that haven't had anything. And that's the kind of data that will really now, as time goes by, start to look at who gets sick, who gets better, how long it takes, and what are the factors that predict, and obviously severity of illness is certain to predict a longer rehabilitation. You don't need to do research to do that. But within that, there are going to be vast variation. And only then will you be able to start to make sense of it. Uh, and the, the stories that one's reading that, uh, from uh, patient groups, et cetera, at the moment, uh, uh, that you need to have this population context. And, and for that, you need research. I'm pleased to say some of it is now happening. Um, but obviously, it couldn't start until we had the epidemic. And you won't get really meaningful results until maybe six months have passed. But that's how we will make progress. And thinking of your friend, general advice is, you know, if you've had a serious bout of these things, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's not rocket science, but, you know, don't, don't, don't try and run it off. That's not clever. So it sounds like this is really, really early days and we don't really know very much or the kind of specifics, but the research is going on. And yeah. We will know. We will uh, we'll know a lot more. I mean, we know some of the principles, you know, don't, don't be too aggressive too early. Don't forget there's a huge variation in how people recover. And even if you're on day 50 or 60, it doesn't mean you're not going to recover. Um, you know, the basic principles of recovery are still there. We know that people with more comorbidities are going to find it more difficult. People who've had terrifying experiences, near-death experiences, are going to be at greater risk of things like depression and PTSD. You've got to look out for that. Uh, all of that stuff, I mean, we're going to have to do research to get the quantities right and understand, you know, the, the, um, the patterns that that will happen. It's just good clinical practice. And, and I hope that people do remember when they're looking at rehabilitation of people who've had dreadful experiences to remember the psychological side, because that could be really important. And, and some people may be nervous about saying these things, you know, yeah, I keep getting nightmares about it and I get panic attacks, but it's to be expected and actually may well be not too difficult to treat. That's all we've got time for today. But come back next week for part two. In the meantime, if you want more from Simon, you can find him at, at Wesley S on Twitter and you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. Whilst you're there, please leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the daily mail briefings at mailplus.co.uk. Bye.